We begin closer to home with politics heating up in our country here, too. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week shuffled his cabinet. Is he getting ready for a possible federal election this spring? Multiple news sources reporting this week that Trudeau told the Liberal Party Board of Directors, get ready, we could be going to the polls in an election this spring. Now, on yesterday's show, I spoke to Aaron O'Toole, the federal leader of the Conservative Party, and we covered a lot of ground in that interview, including the potential for a spring election. Here's what O'Toole told me about that. I find it actually shocking that the Prime Minister of Canada, in the middle of a pandemic, when there are curfews being imposed in Quebec and Ontario likely going to stronger measures today, that he could possibly be thinking of an election. It's time for the Liberal Party to start thinking of Canadians and not their own political skin. Okay, we talked a lot, covered a lot of ground in that interview yesterday with Aaron O'Toole. So with that, let's get the other side of the story, get reaction from the Liberals now. My guest is Jonathan Wilkinson, the Federal Minister of the Environment. He's the Liberal MP for North Vancouver. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Okay, what about this election hype? Is this real? Is this could possibly happen? Well, I think the Prime Minister was pretty clear yesterday that he doesn't want an election. We don't want an election. We certainly uh, want to continue to focus on what Canadians are focused on, which is the pandemic. Um, and so, uh, so no, that is not something that we desire, but we live in a minority situation. It's not up to us as to whether there will be an election. Um, our focus will continue to be the pandemic, and, uh, and you know, the opposition parties in Parliament will have to make a decision as to whether they continue to support the government. Okay, so it'll be up to the opposition to to trigger an election here the prime minister won't try to figure out a way to go to the polls if he loses the confidence of the house in a minority parliament obviously you're off to the races but he's not going to trigger an election well right? and, and he said that very clearly yesterday he doesn't okay. want an election um, the focus yeah. for us is on the pandemic as it is for all canadians so well they always say they don't want an election but then you wonder what's going on behind the scenes what about these reports that he, he told the liberal party board of directors get ready possible election this spring not true well, I, I can't comment on that because I wasn't in that meeting. But what I would say to you is, it, in a minority parliament, it's always the case that uh, that every political party uh, needs to be prepared to fight an election at any yeah. time. Uh, I would tell you that if any leader of any political party wasn't saying that to their board of directors, they're probably not doing their job. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, for the government at this stage, the focus very much is on the pandemic and, and on ensuring that we're working to support Canadians through it. Let me play a couple of sound clips here for you from the uh, conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, on the show here yesterday, Minister, with some of the things that he had to say. Now, here he is uh, talking about the Trudeau government here, and you're going to hear him uh, raise the possibility of tax hikes. Aaron O'Toole on the show yesterday. The, the Trudeau government was running $40 billion deficits in good economic times, raising taxes on Canadians. They're already looking at taxing your house. They're already looking at raising the GST. And we have high unemployment and capital and jobs leaving Canada. Okay, taxing your house, raising the GST. Is this really on the table? Start by Minister. saying that, um, you know, it, it would be helpful if if politicians of all political stripes actually dealt in facts. And, and with the, the, the issue around taxing your house and the capital gains on your house, I mean, this is the fourth or fifth time in the last five years I've heard this coming, and it's always coming from the Conservative Party. 
At the end of the day, let me be very clear and unequivocal, this is not under consideration. It is not something our government will do. I've had to say this four or five different times when Aaron O'Toole and his predecessor, Andrew Scheer, have made the same argument many different, different times. So no. Um, and I think if you look at the government, uh, the, the record of our government, we lowered taxes for Canadians. The very first thing we did in 2015 was lower taxes for middle-class Canadians and raise them on the, on the top 1%. The focus for us is on ensuring affordability for people, especially at these difficult times. So, you know, Aaron O'Toole should stick to facts. Uh, it's certainly helpful to have a discussion and a debate between political parties on, on ideas and where we differ, but to make up facts is just not helpful. Okay, no tax increases at all being considered by the government. Is that correct? What I said is, is no taxes with respect to housing, that yeah. the focus for us is on ensuring affordability. I, I don't think anybody can ever take completely uh, taxes off the table, but, but certainly our focus has been on reducing taxes with respect to the middle class and those working hard to join it, and that, that will continue to be the case. Speaking of Federal Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, as I mentioned off the top of the show here, Minister, we're keeping an eye on what's going on in Washington with the uh, the impeachment of the president here being voted on in the House of Representatives. is historic, never happened twice to a sitting president, and we're witnessing the turmoil uh, going on in the United States. And a lot of people wondering if Trumpism or Trump-style politics has the potential to bleed across the border into Canada. Uh, there's been some coverage and fingers pointed at Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader. Is he dabbling in Trump-style politics? Do you think he is? Well, I would say I think we're all horrified by what we saw happen in the United States a week ago. And I think we're all very troubled by the divisions that we've seen emerge in, in American society. And I think we all should be working very hard to ensure that that doesn't come here. But what I would say is, you know, words matter. And, and I do think that Mr. O'Toole has to be a little bit careful using language like take Canada back, uh, that saying that the radical left is silencing people, talking about Canada first in the same way that President Trump talked about America first. Having a deputy leader who was wearing a, a Make America Great Again hat in a recent photo. I mean, all of those things are not helpful. I mean, if, if, uh, if you, um, when you use a dog whistle, you can't be surprised when the dogs show up. So I, I do think that Erno O'Toole needs to be very careful that he's not trying to stir up the kinds of divisions that exist in the United States. That's not something can Canadians want. Canadians want a debate of ideas. They want the, the opposition to be holding the government to account. That's absolutely legitimate, and it's part of a democratic society and a parliamentary system. But, but they do want us to have bounds on, on how we're doing that, and creating divisions just for the purpose of creating divisions from a political perspective yeah. is not helpful. Okay, speaking of Candace Bergen, she is the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, a federal conservative MP, and, and this photo of her in a MAGA hat, a Make America Great Again hat, that was a photograph that kind of went viral on social media this week. A lot of questions being asked. Why was she wearing this hat? I asked O'Toole about that yesterday. So let me play this here for you. I asked Aaron O'Toole, why was your deputy leader uh, wearing a Donald Trump hat? Here's what he said. Years ago photo, not her hat. Someone gave it to her, posed for a photo. Who do you think sat on this photo for several years to, to drop it into the Twitter sphere this week? Okay, so it's not her hat. Somebody handed it to her. They snapped a photo years ago suggesting it was strategically released this week with the turmoil in the United States. I don't know, maybe suggesting the Liberals re released this photo, it sounded like to me, but your thoughts? 
Well, I, I would just say uh, I think the, the the most relevant question is, did somebody make her put it on? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, whether it's your hat or not, you put it on, um, and and there's a message there. So in the same way that if you put on a hat that had a different label that was perhaps even more offensive, uh, you, you have to take responsibility for your own actions, and I think uh, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party needs to do that. Okay, let me play another clip here for you for Aaron O'Toole. We went over some of the, this, uh, these accusations of whether Trump-style politics are coming to Canada, and I asked him about that, and here's what he told me. The Conservative Party is totally different from the Republican Party in the U.S. I think Canadians know that. My own personal track record was joining the military to serve this country and defend its institutions and its people. That's why I've been reaching out to new Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, LGBTQ Canadians. I want a strong and diverse Conservative Party to get our economy back on track. We're, we're looking at, at giving a poorer country to our kids, Mike, and that's what I'm going to stand for. Mr. Trudeau, who does not have a good record, is going to try and use the division in the U.S. and bring it here. Okay, he says the, the, the Trudeau Liberals, your team, is trying to stir up trouble here and trying to paint the O'Toole and the Conservatives as kind of Trump light. But your thoughts? The, the, the words are, are, are good, and, and I would applaud uh, Mr. O'Toole in terms of, of reaching out to various groups within society and trying to actually build a, a cohesive uh, party and a cohesive Canada. I guess that what I would just say again is, using language like take Canada back, uh, saying that the radical left is silencing people and talking about Canada first in the same way that Donald Trump talked about America first as a slogan, I don't think is consistent with what what Mr. O'Toole just said. So I I hope to see Mr. O'Toole move in that direction, but I do think he needs to be thoughtful and careful about the language that he's using. Thank you for coming on today. Not at all. Thank you. Our capital is scarred, but our democracy survives. Violating his sworn duty to protect and defend our Constitution by seeking to violently overthrow the government. Gentleman's time's expired. Gentleman from Massachusetts. If this is not impeachable, the nothing from is. Oklahoma. All right, that's a little sound of the debate going on right now in the U.S. House of Representatives in Washington. The second impeachment of the president underway in the House. It's a major moment in American history unfolding right now. Just the, the first time ever you would see a U.S. president impeached twice in the House. Of course, it's just seven days left in the term for President Donald Trump, but he's about to be impeached for the second time. That's never happened before. And it comes just seven days after the events of last week. The storming of the U.S. Capitol one week ago today, five people left dead in its wake. The mob of Trump supporters marching to the Capitol, breaking down the barricades, breaking the doors and windows, invading the Capitol building and rampaging for hours. That's why the president is being impeached or faces impeachment today in the House of Representatives. The article of impeachment against Trump accuses him of an inciting an insurrection. And if you remember Trump's speech to the crowd one week ago today, well, here's what that sounded like. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. Stop the steal! Stop the steal! 
Okay, that's the sound of the president a week ago today. The impeachment proceeding underway right now in the U.S. Congress. Let's uh, discuss with my guests now. Bruce Heyman, the former United States ambassador to Canada, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Mr. Heyman, thanks a lot for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm curious, what went through your mind as you watched those events unfold at the Capitol one week ago today? What did you think? Horror, shock, disappointment, frustration, anger. Um, Look, everybody in Canada knows I have not been a fan of Donald Trump from the very beginning. But never, never in my wildest, craziest nightmare would I have ever thought that he would incite an insurrection to call his followers together to go march in the Capitol and to break in and cause damage and threaten the constitutional process of selecting his successor. This is, um, this is a threat to our democracy and people, you know, we live in this Netflix instant media culture. It's like, Oh wow, look what happened in the Capitol day. Well, what's on TV tonight? What are we doing for dinner? No, no, this is serious. This is as serious a threat to our democracy as we've had probably since the civil war and splitting up of our country or its founding. And, We're we're at a very serious moment. Now's the time for accountability. Those that were involved in this need to be held accountable. If you broke into the Capitol, you should be arrested, tried, and if convicted, you should be sentenced. And those that caused this insurrection will also need to be held accountable. And the person at the top of that is Donald J. Trump. Does the president deserve to be impeached today? Is there, is there any doubt in your mind that he incited what happened last uh, week ago today? Leaving all politics aside, there is no doubt in anyone's mind who listened to what you just played, who watched the events that took place since the election and leading up to last week, should know without a shadow of a doubt that this man inspired this, he propelled it, and he should be responsible for it. He should be impeached. My guest is Bruce Heyman. He's uh, the former American ambassador to Canada under former President Barack Obama, talking about the impeachment of the president today. Let me play this uh, for you now. This is uh, Republican Representative Jim Jordan, and here he is talking about the uh, potential impeachment of the president here. Jim Jordan. They're going to impeach a president, a president who is leaving office in eight days eight days before there will be a peaceful transfer of power, just like there has been every other time in American history. But they're going to do impeachment. They're going to do it again. They've been obsessed with it. It is truly an obsession. People on the Democrat side started calling for impeachment the day President Trump was inaugurated. Okay, what do you think of that when he says that, you know, what's the point of doing it again? I mean, he's only got a week left in his term. Your thoughts? You break the law. You need to be held accountable. I don't care if it's a minute left, a week left, a year left. You break the law, you need to be held accountable. This is a trial that is prescribed by the Constitution of the United States. He will be indicted, which is the impeachment. The trial itself will be in the Senate. I don't know how this is going to play out. Does the indictment just sit and wait for 100 days? Does it get presented right away to the Senate? And Do they come together and have a trial? It's important to let everybody know that if you break the law, doesn't matter if you're president of the United States, you're not above the law and you need to be held accountable. 
The article of impeachment, of course, unanimously supported by Democrats, but now we're seeing some Republicans joining the impeachment effort, very notably Representative Liz Cheney, the former, the daughter of the former vice president, Dick Cheney. She's the high, third highest ranking Republican in the House. She's a conservative Republican, and she is out today saying she supports impeaching the president. What is the significance of that? Even we're, not, we're seeing some Republicans turn against Trump here now. Small number, but what is the significance of it in your mind? So I think you asked the absolute right question, because this is not going to be a story about Democrats. This is going to be a story about what the Republican Party wants to be in a post-Trumpian presidency. Do they want to be continued followers of Trump and conspiracies and boogeymen everywhere, or do they want to be a second branch, a second, not branch, but a second party to be effective in governing our country going forward. This is the decision that is within the Republicans, and they're struggling with it, as we can see. I think they're going to be a larger number, but I don't know how many that will fall in with let's get rid of him. There will be others that still embrace him and believe that, wow, he's got money and followers and media influence. But all of that is changing very rapidly this week. Right. I think in in the Senate, where it requires a two-thirds vote to convict the president on an impeachment article, I, I don't believe the Republic, enough Republicans will flip on, on Trump to, to convict him in the Senate. We'll see uh, what happens here. But I wonder if, if in some ways maybe Trump is kind of saved by the bell here because it's so late in his term, only a week left. If this had happened, I don't know, like six months ago, uh, maybe a lot more Republicans would have turned against him. But at this point, with only a week left in his term, maybe some of them are thinking, well, you know, it's just too late. Your thoughts? You know, maybe it's the other way. So first of all, mm. let me just clarify something on the two-thirds in the sure. Senate. Sure. And it, it's a nuance, but one that shouldn't be missed by anybody. It's two-thirds of the senators that are present, yeah. not two-thirds of the senators. So if they were not in the room for the vote, it would be two-thirds of the people who are in the room. So if 20 Republicans conveniently didn't show up for that vote, so they didn't have to take a hard vote, right? it would only require some two or three or four Republicans to flip over, which I think are there right now. So there are other paths to this. I actually think it's a higher likelihood with one week to go than six months to go. Because I think that they feared the president. Six months ago, they didn't know whether the president would have been reelected again, and they'd have to live with him and his wrath. They now know he's not reelected. And they now know he caused this insurrection on the Capitol. I actually think they have a clear and easier window to join in on this impeachment conviction than they may have had at any other time. Of course, when they vote, of course, it's always a recorded vote in Congress, which is, which is, I guess, the way it should be. Uh, I wonder what would happen if it, if it was a secret ballot, you know, if Republicans were able to, if everyone was able to go in and mark their ballot in secret and whether to impeach the president and the Republicans kind of had some of that cover. Do you think, do you think Trump would be gone? Yeah, well, I, I, I think so. But yeah. he's going to be gone next week, as you mentioned. Yeah. The question is, do they, you know, prohibit him from ever running again. And I think that's the key with this whole process. People say, well, what's the point? He's going to be gone anyway. 
Right. Well, the point is they can convict him and then vote to not allow him ever to seek office again. Right, right. My guest is Bruce Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada. How do you think uh, relations between the United States and Canada fared under uh, the Trump presidency? Was it bad for Canada? Very bad. Oh. Be- because you had a president who looked at Canada not as a friend, neighbor, ally, trusted partner. He looked at Canada as just a, you know, a disposable relationship that was completely transactional. You give me this or I'll do this to you. I'll squeeze you. Look at the language that he used about the prime minister and the deputy prime minister and who was then minister of foreign affairs. Look at look at what his threats were to your auto industry. Look at what, you know, the language used coming out of the White House, a special place and you know where for the president of the United States. This was very jarring for Canada. It was also jarring for a number of our allies around the world. We broke that trust bond and now it's going to take time. We're going to have to work to earn it back. And I'm not naive enough to think, oh, we're here. It's all better now. No, no, we, we crossed, a, crossed a, a lot of lines here that we're going to need to work on earning that trust back. And Canadians, I hope you'll be there. And I know you will over time, but I know we're not going to take, take you for granted. And we're going to have to work very hard to earn your confidence back. Last question for you, and you kind of anticipated it. A week from now, we'll we'll see Joe Biden sworn in as the next president. Uh, we'll have a new ambassador to the United States from Canada, I imagine. And what do you think relations will be like between Canada and the United States under a Biden presidency? Amazing. Um, so I traveled uh, with then Vice President Biden to Vancouver. Uh, we went to the Women's World Cup. It was there. I pulled him aside and had a conversation with him about running in 2016, but his son had just died. And the pain that he was dealing with at that moment was tremendous. But you can imagine I had that conversation about running for president with Joe Biden in Vancouver. I had the meeting with him in Vancouver with, uh, I'm sorry, in Ottawa uh, with the prime minister when he hosted him for a state dinner after Donald Trump had already won. I know how Joe Biden President-elect Joe Biden, soon to be President Joe Biden, feels about Canada. He loves the country. He loves the relationship. And then you have a vice president who grew up in high school in Montreal. Yeah. So I, I think that we're in for a really good spell in terms of relations between the United States and Canada. It was great to have you on today. Thanks a lot for your time. It's a pleasure. Be healthy, everyone. We got to get to that vaccine, so just be careful. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk now about Scout, the nine-month-old golden retriever who has become famous here in the last few days in BC. Yes, this is the famous two-tall dog. This is an incredible story. So you've got the owner of Scout, the two-tall dog. Uh, she lives in a condo. De- her name is Rabia Morani. She lives in a condo development in Surrey, Boundary Place, Boundary Park Place, a 34-unit condo complex. They do allow pets, but here's here's the problem: they only will allow a dog that's a small dog. So the dog must be maximum 14 inches at the shoulder. Her dog is 19 inches at the the shoulder. Her dog is too big. Her dog is too tall. So the dog had to go. But she loves her dog so much, she decided to move out. 
She tried to fight it. It was a strata bylaw, of course, at this condo development. She tried to fight it. Couldn't win. She decided to move. Fascinating story. Have a listen to this. This is Rabia Morani, the owner of Scout the Two Tall Dog, in conversation with our own Jill Bennett. So my puppy, her name is Scout. So I got her back in May. Um, you know, back in March, I, I had transitioned to working from home and, and I live alone. And so it's something that I've always really wanted to do. And so um, I uh, adopted her back in back in May. Uh, she was only eight weeks old at the time. Uh, around that time, um, the I was informed, you know, by the Strata Council president that um, if the dog gets too big, then, you know, I'm either going to have to give her up or move. Okay, this is such a cute-looking dog, too. And uh, she says, very gentle dog, but the dog had to go. So she had to go, too. So she actually moved out of that condo complex and is moving, living somewhere else. Okay, let's talk about this story now with my guest. Megan Kant, she is the manager of Companion Animal Welfare at the BCSPCA. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Megan. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. This is a story that's getting a lot of interest for around BC. What do you think of it? Um, I mean, I have to say I was perhaps not surprised, but also saddened. It's just yeah. sort of the state of affairs is that there really isn't a lot of pet-friendly housing in the province. And we'd really like to support people being able to keep their pets because for us, um, one in every four pet that's surrendered to us is because of housing-related issues. And wow. there really isn't a basis for for restricting pets according to height or weight or anything like that. Right. And this is a, a dog owner who loves her dog so much. She was going, no, sure. I'm not giving up my dog. I'm going to move to a different a different place, move out of her condo. That's a yeah, big commitment. Is, yeah. And it's pretty drastic to make that move well, yeah. because, of course, it'll be hard for her to find a place definitely because of all of the, yeah, the lack of pet-friendly housing. That's interesting what you said about the number of animals that are surrendered to the SPCA. So a lot of it is from housing, huh? Yes, and that's a, been a consistent trend for at least a decade or more. Okay, so what is it? Is, is it similar to this story where the condo the condo rules uh, run afoul of the dog, or there sometimes I imagine it's people renting a, a place and the landlord doesn't allow pets. Does that happen? Yes, yeah, definitely. It can be either if you're renting or if you're in a strata as well. There are bylaws that just place the restrictions either on the number of pets the type of pets you can have, or even, yeah, the size of the pets that you can have. What do you think of that rule, that the dog must be a certain size to be allowed in the condo complex? Well, there really isn't any evidence to support um, the size, because this dog was the same at 14 inches, now at 19 inches. If she continues to be, you know, a gentle and friendly dog, the dog herself hasn't changed. Um, So the size is basically arbitrary. It's more to do with the individual behavior of the dog, I would say. Right. Now, let's have a listen to this. Now, this is the owner of Scout, the two tall dog here again, Rabia Morani, in conversation with our, our own Jill Bennett. And she makes the point that, that you just made, Megan, where she says, look, instead of focusing on the size of the dog, what about the behavior of the dog? Here's what she says. Yeah, honestly, it's it's quite arbitrary, um, and it really should be based on the behavior of the animal and their temperament, uh, really, as opposed to their size. Um, and, you know, we go through, you know, I've taken Scout through, you know, multiple, you know, training classes and, and re- I really work on her on a daily basis um, to make sure that she's well behaved. Um, but it just, unfortunately, um, you know, w- we've been put in a position where we're not welcome um, in, in our own home. Okay, so she says that she has a well-behaved dog. It's a golden retriever. Which gener- I mean, a golden retriever is usually a, pr- a pretty gentle dog. I mean, you know, every dog is different, but in your experience, are golden retrievers usually pretty well-behaved? 
Yeah, I mean, the breed is known for being, you know, very great around people, very friendly for sure. Yeah. I mean, it has a lot to do, of course. It's great to hear that she's, you know, gone through a lot of training and stuff like that to just make sure that her dog is good around people because it definitely, as you say, is based on personality as well. Right, and you can have a small dog that can be nasty. <laughs> well, I'd have to say that I have, I've had both big and small dogs, and I'd have to say that my small dogs have always been actually noisier than any of my big well, dogs. Yeah. So they they yeah. bark a lot more, so definitely size doesn't dictate that sort of thing at all. <laughs> well, yeah, like I was thinking, if you're concerned about a dog in, in your condo complex, maybe you'd be, I don't know if you'd be less concerned about an aggressive dog, obviously would be a, a problem. But the noise from a dog would be maybe even a bigger concern, barking or whatever. And I don't know. And I have the same experience. I would say like smaller dogs are, are typically more yappy, would you say? In my experience, personally, I, I don't know across the board, but in my own experience, <laughs> for sure, that my, my little guys are, are pretty barky compared to my big dogs that I've had. Right. Let's have another listen here to the to the owner of Scout, the, the two tall dog here, Rabia Morani. Here she is talking about some other residents at the condo complex. Here she is. So I've seen uh, at least one dog that's a, uh, a little bit smaller than Scout. So I think Scout's about, uh, so the, the rule is 14 inches in height from, you know, uh, from the floor to their shoulder. And Scout is at about 20 inches. And I, I think there's a dog that's just a little bit smaller than her um, in the building. And, you know, I know for sure that they haven't received a notice uh, to get rid of their dog. And I think they've actually been living in this building for about 10 years. Um, and I know of another, you know, another person that's in violation of the pet bylaws in terms of the number of pets. And, you know, he also has not been asked to get rid of his, you know, his pet. Oh, so I wonder why Scout, the golden retriever here, was was singled out. But yeah, that's what that's what she says. But I guess the rules are the rules. But Megan, your thoughts? Um, I mean, I would just say that it's it's unfair to have if bylaws are being inconsistently applied in a strata for sure. Well, yeah. um, she definitely is feeling singled out. I can tell that from what she's saying. Yeah, that's that's certainly uh, it appears to be the way she she feels about it. What about generally speaking about people being allowed to have pets, whether it's in condo, strata, environment, uh, rental, housing? Do you think that people should be allowed to have a pet? Definitely. I mean, I would say that uh, COVID-19 is just sort of highlighted the importance of animals in our lives and how important that that bond with a pet can be to provide us companionship help you know help get us active if it's a dog to help us get outside to walk around uh, just to provide you know that friendship that's so important and i think the pandemic with people feeling more isolated that it's just kind of raised that issue for everyone and so yeah. totally i'm i'm full on for no restrictions for pets right okay so on the tenancy laws in british columbia like right now of course it, it's legal to have a, a a tenancy law where, where a landlord say you're not allowed to have a pet and that's right in the lease i mean that is allowed in british columbia no pets clauses in a lease you, you think that should be changed and people should be allowed to keep it have a pet if they want i mean definitely would say the bcsbca would support a, a change that would re- remove those restrictions to allow people to, to be able to keep their pets or have pets where they yeah. live Right. And but of course, the landlords who are listening right now are a lot of them might be saying no way, because I'm, I'm sure we'll get calls from landlords who say I've, I've had situations where pets have caused damage. Yeah, and definitely we also promote that, um, you know, pet guardians be responsible so that they're, you know, they're spaying and neutering their pets, they're IDing their pets, they're taking their pets to trainers to, you know, deal with issues such as barking and that sort of thing. So for sure it's a two-way street, I believe, that, you know, to have pet-friendly housing, but also ensure that pet guardians are responsible as well. Okay, interesting issue. Megan, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. 
Thanks so much for having me. Welcome back. Let's talk about the deadly gang violence raging in Metro Vancouver now. We've seen multiple fatal shootings in the last two weeks as gangs target rivals on the streets of Metro Vancouver. Experts say gangs are fighting over drug dealing turf. Some gangsters are switching sides. Some are taking revenge. In these gang wars, it is often blood for blood. One killing can trigger another killing the next day. And that appears to be what we're seeing right now. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Grace Key. The latest shooting victim in the Lower Mainland's ongoing gang conflict has been identified as Dilraj Joe Hall. Just before midnight, Richmond RCMP were called to the 8100 block of Lansdowne Road, where they found Joe Hall's body inside a suite, killed by apparent gunfire. Neighbors were shocked to hear it was a targeted killing. Yeah, it's really scary. We thought that Richmond is a safe place to live. But it seems not anymore. And another shooting, this time in Coquitlam in the 1400 block of Kingston Street. About 1 a.m., police found a man with gunshot wounds. Multiple suspects sped away in a car. The victim survived. Police believe the shooting is related to a car fire reported soon after. Okay, that's Global News reporter Grace Key there as we talk about the gang war. Do the police in Metro Vancouver have the resources they need to deal with the situation. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Mike Morris. He's the official opposition critic for public safety, liberal MLA from Prince George. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mike, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike, uh, for sure. And the answer to that is absolutely no, they don't. Uh, They're Uh, ill-equipped. Government has neglected the policing side of things uh, uh, in this province here for the last few years. You know, when... Gangs know no municipal boundaries. They just operate wherever they want to operate. And we have independent forces. We have RCMP contracts throughout much of the lower mainland that are focused on providing the service they need for their communities. But the, the gangsters are traveling from community to community to community, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and that's a provincial responsibility. Uh, years ago, we put together the Combined Forces Special Enforcement uh, uh, Unit uh, to investigate these kinds of things. They've been doing a great job. But along came the Jordan decision in 2016, which has really impacted the ability of police to respond um, because they have to have a case before the courts in 18 months. So they'll do a, a year-long investigation, undercover work, uh, vehicle tracking, a number of uh, technical uh, issues on that file, and then it takes them months to put that file together in order to get it to Crown Council for charge approval so uh, that 18 months doesn't start until the charge is laid. In the meantime, these resources are off the road putting that file together, and there's nobody to replace them on the road. Government have, uh, you know, the authorized strength in BC, I think, is up around 2,600 RCMP members. Uh, th- there's about 200 vacancies that they could have filled a long time ago to not only address issues like Jordan, but to address some of the other shortages that we see through the province here. So obviously the minister is not getting support at the Treasury Board table to uh, get the, the budget to fill those, uh, those resources, but it's imperative. It should well, have been done a long time ago. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, the police resources that you feel that are needed. How many, you're, you're asking what, they, they got to hire more cops? They, they, need more, uh, they need more police officers? They need more police officers, they need more prosecutors, they need more of the support staff that help put these files together. Uh, you know, the disclosure aspect of these files is very technical, uh, so they need a lot of those uh, uh, folks to do that. But, you know, with the 200 more officers, if they threw another 100 or 150 positions in there, they could be uniformed, they could be fully trained criminal investigators, 
uh, but they could also be the technical support they need to put these files together so that these, uh, the, the investigators can get on the road more quickly after they wrap up an investigation. Okay, I'm speaking to opposition public safety critic Mike Morris. He's a, he's a former police officer himself, the liberal MLA from Prince George. Uh, Mike, hiring 200 police officers in the province obviously is uh, be an expensive undertaking uh, for government right now. And we're living in a time when police conduct is under the microscope. There's a review of policing going on in the province right now. You have some people calling for defunding of the police. What do you think of that movement, the defund of the police movement? You know, the, the focus needs to be on public safety. And, uh, you know, this, is, this isn't anything new. Um, the, there needs to be a more integrated approach to policing. A lot of the uh, recalls that police go is by default because uh, there's no other agency equipped or able to handle some of these calls. But I, I believe, and I've said it for a long time, that we need to separate the criminal aspect of policing from the social justice side of things and concentrate on technically elegant criminal investigations and put these gangsters behind bars for as long as we can. Get 100% charge approval, get some uh, high conviction rates in the province here. So a lot of work yeah. needs to take place. Uh, you know, defunding is, is a word nobody really understands. A lot of people don't understand the complexities associated to policing. Um, let's look at an integrated model and let the police do the proper work required on these uh, highly technical well, criminal investigations. Well, the the demand or the argument for defunding the police is basically that you would reduce public spending on, on police and pivot or shift that spending into social services. So instead of instead of having a police response, let's say to a mental health call, you might have a social services response or a mental health response team instead of a police response. And you know, the interesting thing is when you talk to the police, they're not necessarily against the idea uh, of more spending on social services to help them. They're actually in favor of that. But I think the thing that people got to keep in mind is a lot of these cases, even if it's a mental health call, there, there's still a threat of violence or, or actual violence going on. So you actually need a police response in many mental health situations. Would you agree? 100% agree. And I've been in many of those situations myself. So it's a matter of training the first responders. You can't just, you know, pull the police out and expect social services or mental health workers to go in and deal with the situation. You need to give them the tools needed to do the job. And that might mean a little bit of, of you know, how do you de-escalate a situation? How do you handle a situation that does turn violent on you um, at the same time? So there, there's a lot of work involved. This isn't a switch that we can flick and be doing this tomorrow. It's going to take probably uh, several years to integrate these resources. There will be some legislative changes needed. Uh, in the meantime, we have to focus on, on, you know, on how do we address the gang violence that's out there. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got to throw the resources in there to get it done as we make this transition. Okay, a lot of these police spending decisions are at the municipal level, and we just saw the city of Vancouver, for example, in, in their recent budget actually freeze the police budget. The police had been seeking a, a, an increase in their budget. It, the budget was frozen instead, and the Vancouver police said that's going to potentially compromise public safety. It means that as police officers retire from the force, and there's a lot of them retiring, uh, they may not have the money to replace them. So you could see that the number of police just reduced by attrition uh this at the same time when we see this deadly gang war raging right now so how do you how do you deal with the fact that a lot of this is municipal responsibility i mean you're calling for the province to put more money on the table right 
Yeah, you know, um, you know, same thing we're seeing in Surrey with lack of resources there and and, and freezing the, the budget there. Um, the municipalities have a have a role to play. Uh, there's no question about it. That was one of the frustrations I had when I was sitting as a solicitor general and as a senior police manager in the RCMP. Is is the um, police act? There's no metrics in there to describe what an adequate level of policing service is in a, in a municipality. So, as a, as a provincial minister, the the minister is is a little bit uh, um, restricted on what uh, he or she can do in that respect. So, I think the municipalities really need to examine what they're doing there before they they make a move like cutting police resources. Um, until we come up with a model that is more fully integrated and can provide the help that we need for the vulnerable people that we have on the streets. And, you know, separating the social justice issues. We have people committing crimes just to survive. And, uh, but we also have people committing these heinous crimes, these guns and gang uh, members uh, that are committing heinous crime that are jeopardizing the lives and safety of British Columbians and involving children. Those are the guys that we should be targeting. Mike, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike.